from Ephesians chapter 2 this morning about what it means to be saved. Matter of fact, we're going to be putting this message in our New Believers Pack when people cross the line and give their hearts to Jesus, but we're also going to put it into our, um, our guest pack after this message. So you pray for me this morning while I'm preaching because this message will be listened to quite a bit. But occasionally somebody will ask me, they'll say, what do Christians mean when they say they're saved? Or what does it mean to be born again? And I love those kind of questions and those kind of conversations. When people ask me that, because then it just gives me a chance to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ and what it really means. Sometimes that person that will ask me is Muslim. Sometimes that person that will ask me is is somebody who grew up in our community and they've never even been to church before. They're just, they don't know. And there are so many people in our community, particularly in our community, and this was just made so real to us after being back home in Georgia for a while and, and just realizing how churched that part of the country is and coming here and meeting people that they've never been inside of a church, they've never... So many have been to weddings that, are, that are, haven't been done by a minister. And so sometimes their first exposure to the gospel is when you bring them to church or you share your faith with them. So this morning, I'm going to take you through Ephesians 2 and just kind of share with you what I tell people, what it means to be saved, because this is a great explanation in these first 10 verses of what it means to be saved, to be born again. And I'm so thankful that you're here. We had a good service, the first service. I'm so thankful you're here on this Labor Day weekend. I know that um, I have no problems with people going away for vacations and holidays, but you never know what it's going to be like on a major three-day, four-day weekend like this, and then to come in and see people smiling and worshiping God. I'm glad that you're here today with me and that you're here to worship the Lord with us. So I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me out of respect for the Word of the Lord. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. That's you, that's me. The Ephesians, they understood this. Remember, this is an encyclical letter. It's a letter being circulated among the church. They understood this. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. And that word literally means the spirit of the age or the principles of this world. Used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work or the one who energizes. He is the spirit energizing the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. Now remember, he's writing to the church. He's not writing to the world. But this is left for us as the Word of God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. The God who is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. 
For he has raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. I mean, you're seated with Christ today. You've gone from the cemetery to the throne room. You've gone from the graveyard to the throne room of heaven. Look at your neighbor and say, I've gone from the cemetery to the throne room of heaven. Tell them that. I've gone from the cemetery. I mean, think, you've got to get that in your mind because Christians read that sometimes. They don't really understand how powerful that statement is. What's underneath the feet of Jesus is underneath your feet. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? What is underneath the feet of Jesus is underneath your feet. Well, that's not the message, but so I'll get back. We are seated with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as an example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness, the shalom of God, when everything is as it should be, the peace of God. When God's will is being worked out in our lives, we talked about that last week, the shalom of God. As he has shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. And now for the second time, he's going to say it again. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you, take, you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This is a rich passage. This is a rich passage of Scripture on what it means to be saved, what it means to be born again. So join me in prayer. I ask you, Lord, this morning that you would open our eyes. God, to the joy, the freedom, and the liberty of what it means to have been saved from our sins. I ask you, Lord, for those of us that have grown indifferent or taken for granted or maybe our passion for you has cooled, God, you would open our eyes once again to this amazing story of grace. I ask you, Lord, for those that may not be believers and they're here, and we're so glad they are, Father, and they're not even sure why they're here today, but they're here, and I pray in the name of Jesus that you would open their eyes to see how much you love them, that that song we just sang, he loves us, he loves us. Oh, God, that's the story of the Bible, that you so love this world that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believed would not perish but have everlasting life. And so I ask you now for a deep work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives on this Labor Day weekend. And everybody agreed and said, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Well, the first thing this passage is saying to you and I is that we're saved from sin. I am saved from sin. And that's a word that's not really popular in our society and our culture anymore. Matter of fact, a number of years ago, a psychiatrist wrote a book entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? and how that our society was trying to get rid of the word of sin. But sin is not a word that we should be ashamed of. It's not a word we should back away from using. It's a word that diagnoses the condition of every human being. And if I 
deny that I have cancer, I'm going, to deny, I'm going to die from cancer. If I deny that I have a kidney disease, I'm going to die from a kidney disease. Last week, I had a, a kidney infection, the first one I've had in, three, uh, in 10 years. And for three days, I ran a fever. And so now, because of my medical past and history, I have like a dozen tests lined up over the next few weeks that they're running on me because they just want to be sure that everything's working right. And, and I'm healthy. I'm good. My blood work, my blood pressure, and everything sounds good. But they just want to be sure. And so I think it's important that you understand how important the understanding of this concept of sin is if we allow this word to be eliminated from our vocabulary or from the culture of our world, as this psychiatrist wrote about a number of years ago, then we are not understanding what the real condition of human beings really are. To be sinful means that we're enslaved, that we're obeying the devil, that there's some power at work in, in us. The Bible tells us that we're dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sins. You just read it with me. We're dead in our trespasses in our sin. Trespasses when we violate the will of God, when we do something against the will of God. Sin is the condition that we live in and rebellion against God. When I was a youth pastor, I remember I was doing a series on what it meant because I wanted our students to understand what it meant to be dead in trespasses and sin. And so I, I brought a mannequin into the service one night and I'd have some of the girls come up and flirt with the mannequin and the mannequin never moved. The mannequin never made any decision. I had somebody come up and offer the mannequin a, a beer. I had somebody come up and offer the mannequin drugs. The mannequin never moved. It was dead. And then I'd have some of our football players come up and we had a large youth group and we had football players from the two opposing teams and I had them come up and challenge the mannequin and somebody would hold it while somebody slapped it and the mannequin never moved. It was dead in its trespasses and sins. And dear ones, hear me this morning. Although we don't like to, to admit this, the Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sin and what that means is we are completely controlled and we're completely mastered by the devil. We are dead to God. We are spiritually incommunicado with God. We are spiritually separated from God. Now, if you were to walk up to an unbelieving mother today with three little children that's real busy and has a career, you'd walk up to her and say, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. She would look at you like you were an idiot. She wouldn't know what you were talking about. If you were to walk up to a CEO of a major corporation who's not a believer and tell him, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, he'd have no idea what you're talking about. He's alive. He's energized. He's building a corporation. He's managing departments. He's overseeing a vision. If, if you walk up to an unbelieving friend at work on the line or in a classroom and you said, you're dead, they're going to go, what are you talking about? And this is why it's so important for you to understand and for me to understand what the Bible says means when it says we're dead in trespasses and sin. We are separated from God. We are in communicado with God. Our spirit is dead. We must be born again, as Jesus said in John chapter 3. And this thing of sin is so important because somebody will say to me, well, everybody sins. And I go, well, you know, the Bible says that too. We've all sinned. I, I've sinned. We, we've fallen short of the glory of God. To say that we're a sinner is not to, to demean somebody. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Aren't you this morning? How many sinners saved by grace are here today? Can I see your hands? Of course we are. I heard somebody on the radio say one time, never say you're a sinner saved by grace. You're a child of God. And I thought to myself, here's 
here's a man that means well, but you're no child of God until first you've been saved by grace and confess and admit your sins. Can you say amen to that? And so we are sinners saved by grace. God comes into our life, but here's the question. When somebody says sin's not such a big deal, I want to go to them. Sin is a really big deal. How much sin should God allow into his presence? The blood of Jesus, the Bible tells us, cleanses us from how many of our sins? All sin. Say it with me. From all sins. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. When Olympians get tested, there can't be any performance enhancement drugs in their body, so they test it, and it has to come out clean. It has to come out zero. I've had several blood transfusions in my life, and lately I'm really concerned because of they're talking about the contamination of blood. I want to be sure that when the blood that I get or the blood that you receive, that there is no HIV contamination, there's no other disease in there. We want to be sure that blood is clean. Can you say amen to that? And what you've got to understand is Sin cannot abide in the presence of God. It's not that God can't abide sin. Sin comes into the presence of God. It cannot abide there. Just like sunlight will cure some diseases, the presence of God and the holiness of God, sin is destroyed. And the only way you and I can be saved is somebody's blood atoned for our sins, and that was the blood of Jesus. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? Secondly, I'm saved from the ways of this world. Remember what we just read? The Bible says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. What does the Bible mean by that? It's the immoral. It's the godless. It's the principles of rebellion against God. It's that drive that everyone has to try and impress other people with their success, with their education, with their wealth, with their home. It's that desire that we have to, to be fashionable. I looked, started studying this word fashion a few months ago because I was working on a message that I'll be preaching later. And do you know that the word fashion is relatively a new word? It's not a word that they understood about uh, the fashion that we talk about, the fashion industry of clothes and modeling and all that stuff. It's become a new word in our world of prosperity where we want to be fashionable. We want to look like everybody else. We want to wear what else everybody else is wearing. The Bible tells us if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to this world, Jesus said, it would love you as it's on. The ways of this world is the spirit of this age that says, I can do my own thing. I can be my own God. I can do what I want. The spirit of this age that would deny that there is a Lord. The spirit of this age that would deny that there is salvation. The spirit of this age that says, we don't need God. Third thing the Bible says, I am saved from the devil. And occasionally somebody, when I'll say that, what it means to be saved, they say, really, you, you believe in a literal devil? Oh, yeah. The Bible talks about him. Paul calls him the devil in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 6, he calls him the evil one. In Ephesians chapter 6, I believe about verse 18, the Bible calls him the father of all lies. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. The Bible tells us of how he came to tempt our Lord and Savior in the wilderness. This was not some psychotic episode that he was having. There is a real devil that we're battling against. And the word that Paul uses here is archeon. It's talking about this 
this ruler, the ruler, look at Ephesians 2, 2 with me. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are defeated. You say, Pastor, do you fear the devil? Should we fear the devil? Of course not. He is a defeated foe. He is the accuser. He is the liar. His power has been broken and defeated by Christ at Calvary. He can never separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we give him another hand of praise this morning? But he is that power at work influencing the world, influencing the ways of this world, influencing people's thoughts. And I don't know why God allowed him this power. I don't know why God put him, allowed him this position. But this one thing I know, and this is important, I trust God. And I know that everything that God does is for his good and for his glory and for our good. And if God allowed this, there is a good reason for it. And since he is the defeated foe and what's under the feet of Jesus is under your feet and my feet this morning. And the Bible tells us that all we have to do is resist him and he will flee from us. I trust the Lord. That enemy is there. He's God's devil. And as Martin Luther says, God has him on a short leash to do what God wants him to do. Let's give him one more hand of praise this morning. But it's important that we understand this because this ruler of the kingdom of the air is at work trying to influence the way people think, trying to influence politics, trying to influence education, trying to influence fashion and society, art and culture. Sometimes people will ask me, they say, Pastor, why did I do that? I, Pastor, why didn't I think? What happened to me that for some reason or another, I, I, I forgot about what would happen to my family. I forgot about what would happen to my career. I forgot what happens to my memory. I, I forgot about what would happen to my children, to the church, to the society around me. Why did I say yes to that? Remember, the Bible says the, that the devil is the father of all lies. And when he tempts us, he tries to draw us away to disobey God. And he says to you, if you do this, you're going to be happy. If you do this, you're going to be fulfilled. But the end of everything that Satan tempts you to do, and when you disobey God and you follow the influence of the evil, you always inherit a truckload of heartbreak, a truckload of disappointment, and you hurt those around around you because the devil never produces happiness in the long run. He always produces death and slavery and destruction. And it is important that we recognize that those who are disobedient, the Bible says, they are energized by the power of evil. And how they're energized is in their thought life. Tim and Beverly LaHaye years ago wrote a book called The Battleground. And the battleground, they pointed out, was from the scripture. And you either live in submission to God or you live in rebellion to God. And that's the question that each of us have to ask ourselves today as followers of Jesus Christ. Yes, we've all sinned. Yes, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But we no longer have to live or participate in sin or the sinful ways of this world. Can you say amen to that? Now, I need to add an important corollary truth to this. Not a caveat, but a corollary truth. And I want you to listen carefully. I am not saying that lost people, sinful people, can't do kind things and good things and loving things and noble things. Some of the kindest people I know are people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Some of the most moral people I know 
are people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. I'm always taken aback at how modest some people who do not believe in Jesus can live and not try to flaunt themselves. I'm always taken aback by some people how kind they are who do not believe in Jesus Christ. They're kinder and more generous than many Christians are who've named the name of Jesus, but they've never gone on to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. So I'm not saying that they're not good people, they're not kind people or moral people, but what I'm saying is this. The Bible says that our works of kindness, our works of morality, our works of generosity, those things cannot save us. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from our sins. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved according to verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, so we can do the good works that God planned for us long ago. Can we give him one more hand of praise this morning? Isn't that beautiful? That's the word of the Lord. Now, here's something else, I, I, another corollary truth. I don't underestimate the devil. I know he's defeated. I know that his power is broken, but I don't underestimate him because his lies can come across so smooth. His lies can come across so sly. Have you ever met a salesman that could sell an Eskimo a deep freezer? Yeah, you've met these silver-tongued people. They just convinced you. Years and years ago, a man convinced Becky and I we needed a vacuum cleaner. It cost $1,300. He sucked our carpets up. He sucked our sofa things up. He did amazing things, and he was so good and so... He can, and you know I'm a bit of a germaphobe. He was showing us how much germs was in the air, and he showed the dirty water that came out of that rainbow vacuum cleaner. And I looked at Becky and I said, we got to have it. And Becky says, we need to... I said, no, this house is... Look at this. This house is filthy. we got to have this. I paid $1,300 for a vacuum cleaner. It should have had a steering wheel and a transmission for that much money. You see, there are those kind of people. They're just good at sales. Don't you tell nobody I told you that. <laughs> now, here's the thing. The devil comes along, and he seduces. You never underestimate the power. I need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me, giving me discernment and giving me the ability to see through the lies of the enemy. Can you say Amen. You say, Pastor, why such a big deal on this point? Because the Bible is really clear on something that we've got to understand. The Bible talks about those cravings we have, and I'll get to that a little bit more, but let me just try to illustrate it like this. That word cravings is epithenia, and it literally means like an addiction. You know, like a drug addict has to have drugs. And back when I worked in mental health, I've watched drug addicts and alcoholics suffer so much when they needed drugs or they needed alcohol and they went through those withdrawals. It's those cravings of the flesh. If you're addicted to drugs, you need more drugs. If you're addicted to ego, you need more people patting you on the back. If you're addicted to people's approval, you need people patting you on the back, telling you how good you're done. If you're addicted to compliments, you're always trying to get somebody else to tell you how good you are. You need more and more and more, and you're just simply driven by that. If you're in need of recognition and you're addicted to that, and you're always wanting people to recognize you and your accomplishments, your achievements, or that you matter, you're important, have a teenager, and God will teach you how unimportant you really are. 
You see, if you're addicted, those cravings come into your life. And it's how the enemy works at us. It's that self-centeredness. And so, what I'd like you to think about for just a moment is how self-centered, and, and I love you, and, and, and this is me too, we all tend to wrestle with this thing called self-centeredness, this thing called ego in our lives. Nobody wrote about it, in my opinion, better than C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis says that there's nothing more enslaving than self-centeredness. He tells us that self hold the quote for just a second. He said, self-centeredness is, is like living in hell. It's a, a living hell because it's miserable. It's agonizing because you're always wanting more and more for yourself. Now, here's the question that I want you to think of. We're saved from sin and we're saved from the devil. What made the devil the devil? And that's a question it's an important question. I've taught on that on Wednesday nights here before a couple of times. What made the devil the devil? And the Bible gives us some indication of this, that it was his self-centeredness and his conceit. It was his concern to be like God, to exalt his throne above God's throne. It was his concern to get glory and to get praise. It's something that literally led the devil to this place where he fell and his influence caused a third of the angels to fall with him. It's what we know as the demonic spirits today. It's, the, it's that self-centeredness and that conceit that I've got to be number one. I've got to be the best. I've got to be great. Listen to these words C.S. Lewis wrote about this in the book Mere Christianity. And if you've never read it, I deeply recommend this book to you. Speaking of self-centeredness, but that little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself which, unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time he is tempted, and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the spiritual man. What twist is that? That self-centeredness that when you don't treat me the way I ought to be treated, when you don't appreciate me the way I think I ought to be appreciated, when you don't recognize me the way I ought to be recognized, when you don't say thank you enough, all those things that we wrestle with that can make us angry, and then the more we think on it, the angrier we get, and then we get angry at bosses, we get angry at our wives, we get angry at our children, we get angry at our neighbors, because nothing is happening because we want to be our own little gods. It goes right back to the temptation of the garden. You will be like God. And so Lewis is driving this point home, and he says it will make the rage worse when he does fall into it, and each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist and the central man straightened out again. Each is in the long run doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside is what really matters. You say, Pastor, what made the devil the devil? It was conceit. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. Speaking of pastors and elders, he says, and this person should not be a new convert so he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That condemnation came because of his pride and his conceit. When you have been born again and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you seek to become more and more like Jesus Christ who said, I came not to be served, but I came to serve. And the greatest among you is a servant. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise this morning? There's nothing in the devil that wants to be a servant, but wants to dominate it is that same spirit at work in our world. 
Look at this in Ephesians 2 and verse 3. All of us lived among them at one time, talking about the world, and we gratified the cravings. Cravings is that something you need, like an addiction. We followed its desires. That's something we want as opposed to what God wants for us and our thoughts. And it's when we say we have a better idea than God. I've wondered so many times what made a woman like Hillary Clinton who grew up in a Methodist church, a conservative Methodist church, and please don't take this as a political statement. This is a statement of morality. I don't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican, but I do care about morality and I do care about the unborn, and I do care about marriage. But when somebody like Hillary Clinton gets up and says, the minds of evangelicals must be forced, don't miss that word, forced to change on abortion and upon marriage. And those are quotes that you can find multiple times, must be forced to change upon abortion and marriage. What would take the mind of a young woman that grew up in the Methodist church? What would take the mind of young German students who grew up in Lutheran churches and somehow or another think that the wholesale slaughter of Jews and blacks and, and gypsies should somehow or another be justified in Christ? What would take the minds of people in God's creative order of marriage and somehow or another say that God's creative order of marriage is wrong and our creative order of marriage is right. It is nothing but the spirit of rebellion and defiance in this world. When we crave something selfishly, I want you to hear me today. That's the spirit that we have been saved from and we need to give God thanks and praise and constant recognition that there but for the grace of God we go each and every one of you and I this morning. Can we give him one more hand of praise? important yesterday somebody was in my study we were sitting here talking and their 80 something year old mother stands outside every week praying silently praying at an abortion clinic because the life of those unborn babies matter and I thought what a contrast to that woman caught on camera bragging about how she could sell a heart or a limb or a brain and buy her new Ferrari or whatever it was while they ate in a fancy restaurant and drank red glasses of wine as they talked about what could take people. Friends, we are not barbarians. We are the people of God. And this nation wasn't founded upon barbaric principles. It was founded that we all matter to God. Can you say amen this morning? What does it mean to be saved? It means I'm saved from sin, I'm saved from the ways of this world, and I'm saved from the power and the influence of the devil. But let's look at something positive here. I'm saved and given the gift of a new life. I have a brand new life. God breathes into me his life. I'm born again. It was, it was God's love. Don't, don't miss this because this is huge. This is huge. Look at me for just a second. It was God's love that put Christ upon Calvary. It was God's love that sacrificed his only begotten son so that you and I could be born again. It was God's mercy withholding the judgment that I deserved and you deserved for our sins. It is God's grace to give me what I don't deserve, a brand new life, to give me the shalom of God where I can prosper, where I can be in health, where I can have peace with God, where things can be right between Becky and I and between you and I, and things can be right between the church where the shalom of God can 
exists in the midst of a fallen world. There is a place of hope. There is a place of refuge. There is a place of safety. There is a kingdom that is advancing forcefully in this world, and it's called the born-again, blood-washed body of Jesus Christ. We are saved and given a new life together. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! God gives me what I don't deserve. He gives me his blessings. Ephesians 2, 8, verse 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Friends, my life is a gift from God. Your life is a gift to you from God. What you do with that life, as you've heard so often, is your gift to God. What you do with your mind, your renewed mind, what you do with your health, what you do with your finances, what you do with your family, that's your gift to God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. When you're born again, God gives you the free gift of life. He energizes you. His Holy Spirit comes to live within you. We've all seen and we've laughed at that little energizer bunny. How many of you know what I'm talking about? We've all laughed at that little bunny popping the drum and he just keeps on going and going. I've never bought one that just kept on going and going, but we get the point it's supposed to last longer. But you have the gift of eternal life. You're never going to stop living. You're always going to. And when you breathe your last breath upon this earth, you will breathe your first breath in the presence of Jesus Christ. Can we give him a hand of praise for that? (laughs) Hallelujah. Why? Because you've gone from the cemetery to the throne room, from the graveyard to the right hand of God. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places this morning. That's the truth in the word of the Lord. You see, there's this phrase over and over in Ephesians 2. It says, united with Christ, united with Christ, united with Christ. Becky and I were united in holy matrimony 42 years ago. We are one. We've enjoyed our lives together. We we love each other. God has given us a family. But today, I want you to know, if you've confessed your sins and put your faith in Christ, you have been united with Christ. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and that's the hope of glory. Can we give him one more hand of praise for that? Unless you think, oh, that's just a theological statement, you need to read the Gospels, buddy. Sweetheart, you need to pull your Bible down and dust it off. You, you just being such an idiot when you don't read the Gospels because you think you know so much. Read your Bible because Jesus lived a wild life. Jesus lived an exhilarating life. Jesus lived a bold life. Jesus lived a creative life. Jesus lived a loving life. Jesus faced the powers of hell and overcome them. And you this morning, you have been called to be more than an overcomer in Christ Jesus. It's a wild, exciting, exhilarating life life when you are in Christ. Don't give me any pictures of sickly, pasty, white-looking Jesus is holding their hearts in their hands. 
Give me the picture of Jesus in the gospel, walking on the waves, rebuking the devil, healing the sick, forgiving the sinner, loving the unlovable, touching the leper, facing down the priest in the temple, from the dead again. My Lord Jesus is a wild, exhilarating Savior. You can't tame God. You can't put him in a box. You can't domesticate God. He is the God of this universe. And one day, every single one of us will stand before him, either covered by the blood of Jesus or reaping the consequences of a life that says, I don't want you in my life, Jesus Christ. It's a wild life he's called us to. Let me read you one other verse here that's so important. Now, husbands, you need to listen to this. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your, don't honk the horn. Trust me. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are. That's talking about physical weakness. But she is your equal, say that with me, equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. You see, I only heard women saying amen right there. Can I hear some men say amen too? You see, what's he saying there? There is no gender inequality in the body of Christ. Everybody matters. There is no big eyes and no little use. You need to understand something. The way you treat your wife has a lot to do with how your prayers are answered. And the way we treat one another has a lot to do with how our prayers are answered. I live by faith. I don't live by my circumstances. God gave me new life despite my circumstances. Sometimes my circumstances work the way I want them to, and sometimes they don't work the way I want them to. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes the plan comes together just like I wanted the plan to come together. Sometimes the plan falls all apart. But despite the circumstances, I've got new life. The focus is never on my circumstances. It is on me. It is on you. And then finally this morning, and sweetheart, if you'd come up to the piano, I am saved for one reason and one reason alone, because Jesus put himself where I was supposed to be. You look at that cross. Last week I told you how Paul, we looked at how Paul said, I will boast only in the cross. This week you read how Paul said he would boast only in God's grace. John Stott wrote, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's the essence of what it means to be born again. As a boy, I loved the King Arthur legends. I read them all. Check them out of the library, read them. As a young man, I bought a copy of John Steinbeck's translation of the King Arthur legends that he wrote for his boys. A writer that I was familiar with from Campus Life and Young Life magazine and then went on to work for Christianity Today, Stephen Lawhead, great writer, great novelist. Stephen wrote a book called The Pendragon Cycle. Taliesin, Merlin, and author. He moved to England with his family and did research 
on all the Arthurian languages, all legends, and pulled out the Christian concepts that he could find in them. And then he wrote a very creative story, his own personal twist on the line of the Pendragons. And when you read his stories, wow. Let me tell you something. Listen to me. This, this won't cost you anything. Parents, you need to teach your children to read. You need to read to your children. A television can never take the mind and help the mind to create and build the scenes that a good author's words can do. But when you read those stories and you see the soldiers the night before battle against evil, they're boasting in their king. They're boasting in their swords. They're boasting in the might of their army. You see the enemy boasting on the other side. They're boasting in their king. They're boasting. What are they doing? They're doing the same thing that a football team does. The coach gathers them for one final speech, one final pep talk in the locker room. The football players jump up and down and they chest bump one another and they come out on the field. They're ready to do battle. They're ready to defeat the enemy. The lawhead marvelously takes Merlin, Taliesin, and later Arthur, and in his telling, they've come to know Jesus. In his telling, some of the Druids have come to know Jesus. And while the soldiers make their boast, then Arthur or Merlin will come up and they will remind them of the great Yesu. They will remind them of the great God. They will remind them of the cause of justice and righteousness they're fighting for. They will remind them of what the enemy is trying to do in rape and pillage and destruction. And they make their boast in the Lord. And as they make their boast in the Lord, something happens to those armies of, of Arthur. And they get ready to go out and do battle against the enemy. And friends, I submit to you, our boast this morning is not in our giftings. Our boast is not in our church. Our boast is not in our denomination. Our boast is not in our government. Our boast is not in our army. We boast in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again on the third day and is coming back again. I boast because I know the Lord Jesus Christ is my Savior this morning. Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. Father, I'm asking you in the name of Jesus, search our hearts this morning. Help us to glory in what it means to be saved. Help us to remember where you brought us from. God, if this church, 20 years after its founding, the churches in Ephesus, needed to be reminded because, Lord, they were growing indifferent and they were quarreling with each other, then how much more do we need to be reminded today? Let us never forget it was this church 40 years, 50 years later, Jesus, you would say about them, you've lost your first love. You're doing everything right, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. Return to your first love. God, I ask you in the name of Jesus this morning, touch us. May we fall in love with you all over again. 
May we meditate upon these words and give you praise and thanks for saving us from our sins. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, we will never embarrass you, but there may be a real tug at your heart this morning. Or maybe you once used to follow closely to the Lord and lately you just would admit, I've become more of a cultural believer than a passionate follower of Christ. I'm going to ask you to talk to Jesus right now. If you're not a follower of Christ, I'm going to ask you to ask Him, thank Him for forgiving you of your sins. I'm going to ask you to commit to following Him and become united with God and understand what this passion is all about. You see, I want you to hear me. God wants you to know you can do more than know about Him. You can experience Him for yourself this morning. So just pray with me. Just pray quietly, something like this. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the gift of Jesus upon that cross for my sins. Thank you that Jesus took my place upon that cross. And thank you, Lord, for your mercy, for not condemning me for my sin, but saving me from my sin, from this world's spirit, and from the devil. And thank you for the blessing of new life in Jesus. I don't deserve it, but you give me a new life as I confess you as my Lord and Savior. Now as much as I know how, I commit this day to following you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And let's all say, Amen. Last week I shared with you the joy we had in adopting each of our children. God adopts you as his own, and I want you to know it gives him great joy to save you, to forgive you, to make you his son. It gives heaven great joy. Our friends and family would always celebrate. People would throw parties with us. We dedicated our children. It was such a great moment of joy. The Bible says even the angels of heaven rejoiced this morning over your decision to invite Christ into your life. So can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that this morning? <clears throat> now, let's bring this down. What happens? Your sins are forgiven. So now you can choose contentment over anger. You don't have to live a self-centered life. Contentment doesn't mean you don't try to become better. I want to become a better preacher. I want to become a better husband. I work at that all the time. But I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to live in anger. I'm just going to choose to be content. Secondly, I could choose cooperation over criticism. And boy, isn't our world filled with criticism today? If you don't believe it, go home and turn Fox or CNN on today, and everybody's going to be criticizing everybody. 
And you know, the talking heads, they think they're the smartest people on the whole wide planet. You know, you choose to, it's easy to criticize. It's easy to point out other people's faults. It's easy to point out other people's mistakes. But in the body of Christ, we choose to cooperate. Can you say amen? amen? The little song we used to teach children when we all pull together, 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 for your work is my work and our work is God's work. You choose to cooperate in a marriage, in a family, rather than criticize. Teenager, don't criticize your mom and dad. You wait till you become a parent. And then when you do it all right, you can come back and tell them how you've done it all right. But nothing will humble you more than to have to raise you. Let me say that again. Nothing will humble you more than have to raise you. And every once in a while, I'll see somebody raising a teenager and they'll say, you know what? My daddy used to tell me, my mama used to tell me, one day you're going to get what you sowed. And boy, am I ever getting it. So don't criticize. Pray for your mom and dad. Compliment them. Thank them for your bed. Thank them for your food. Thank them for your clothes and your education. Thank them. Finally, choose forgiveness over bitterness. You're going to be hurt, but you can choose to forgive or you can choose to be bitter. The world gets bitter. Maybe you didn't have good parents just like I talked about. Maybe your parents didn't provide. Forgive them. Because the longer you carry that bitterness, it's going to reflect to other people. You're going to expect other people to be grateful to you because you're doing what your daddy didn't do, what your mama didn't do, what your boss didn't do. You'll find yourself going, oh, if they had to work like I had to work, if they had to do what I had to do. No, you choose to forgive. You choose to live like Jesus. And then finally, when you're born again, you get to choose to live all of your life in the rhythms of God's amazing grace. Can you put that up for me? You get to choose to live all of your life in the rhythms of God's glorious grace. Stand with me as we read Matthew eleven twenty nine. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. How many of you'd like to learn to live freely and lightly? Can I see your hands? How many of you'd like, despite your circumstances, to live freely and lightly? Despite your boss to live freely and lightly? Don't raise your hand on this one, teenager. Despite your mom and dad to live freely and lightly? Parents, don't raise your hand on this one. Despite your children to learn to live freely and lightly? Despite your husband to learn freely and lightly? <laughs> despite your wife to learn freely and lightly. There's an unforced rhythm of grace where you live free. You say, Pastor, do you do that? Yeah, not perfectly. But I'm going to tell you, I'm a happy camper. God has been so amazingly good. I can never say thank you enough. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to worship you with our tithes and our offerings. We're going to give. Then we're going to go out back and we're going to picnic, Lord. We're going to have a Yankee barbecue. That's hot dogs and hamburgers. One day we're going to have a southern barbecue. Lord, we're going to do a whole hog out there. Lord, thank you. Help us today to have a free and a light and a joyful day in you. We've been saved. We've been born again. 
We are free and we are loved. For it's in Jesus' holy name I pray. And everybody said, amen. Can we give him one more hand of praise? This is a good day to praise the Lord. Hallelujah.